The Spiel is sponsored by TimeWellSpent.org, who would like to remind you that any time playing games is time well spent. From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, Episode 31, Samurai Slumlords. So hello and welcome to The Spiel. My name is Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. Uh, I think we've got a really good show on tap. A few new surprises, I think. Yeah, one that you probably already figured out. (laughs) We have our first sponsor of the show. We'll have a lot more information on on our sponsor later on in the uh, episode, but we've got... I think a good fun lineup of, of oh, games. A couple of great list. games finally come off the list. Landlord and Shogun. Awesome. I know Dave's been chomping Woo-hoo! at the bit to play Shogun forever and ever. So Exactly. And look forward to um, some kind of old school goober coming <laughs> up a little bit later. That'll be cool. Yep. You been up to anything interesting in the last uh, since last we sat down? Yeah, I have my voice back. That's news. Yeah, in the, news that's for true. Me. <laughs> exactly. I have my voice. Woo! You know, man, I don't do anything interesting. I take a trip to Oz every night. Other than that, really, uh, really nothing. That's right. You're uh, playing. At least you're not a flying monkey. And uh, well, of Oz. some might argue with that. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm uh, outside building my deck. We're replacing our deck, and I'm ready for that job to be done. Yeah, I don't know that I would have started it, but... Yeah, yeah, well, I'm just stupid that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, enough about us. Time to get talking about games, so let's just hit it. Game News and Notes So congratulations are in order to the third winner of our Name That Game contest. That winner is... Dustin Gervais of New Rochelle, New York. He was the first one to get the answer right for the latest Name That Game contest in episode 30. Now, for all those, this this one took a little bit longer. It's still just a little over a day, I think. Within the first day, we had a winner, so we, we still need to try to stump you a little harder. But a lot of you got stumped on this one. We didn't have quite so many correct guesses. Um, so I thought this was a really fun puzzle. For those of you who are still racking your brain out there, the answer to the Name That Game contest from episode 30 was Robo Rally. So if you remember back, it it was a weird conversation, convoluted with weird sound effects. It was a conversation between two Robo-Rally robots as they're playing the game and one of them gets shoved into the pit. If you go back and listen, I bet you'll be able to to hear it now or you may already be hitting yourself in the head going, of course I get it. Uh, but congratulations, Justin. He wins a free copy of Rage, the card game, courtesy of Fundex Games. So congratulations, Dustin. Remember, we'll be playing the Name That Game contest in every episode from now on. Um, there, It will happen at a random time in the episode. You don't know when it's going to happen. You'll hear the little Asian music at the beginning, and that's your clue to, to listen up. And there'll be a clue that follows that little theme music. And the only thing that's constant is whatever the clue might be, the answer answer to the clue is the name of a game. So you want to send your answers to the puzzle to stephen at thespiel.net 
or Dave at thespiel.net and put in the subject line, name that game. And uh, the first person who correctly identifies the game is going to win a free copy of Rage. So good luck and, and listen up close. So Dave, what's first for you on News and Notes? First up in this episode, Wings of War Miniatures. Very, very, very cool. Um, before we get into the miniatures, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the game for anybody who's not familiar with the game. Uh, Wings of War is a card game that was co-published by Fantasy Flight Games and Nexus Games in 2004. It was designed by Andrea Angelino and Pergiogio Paglia. It's for two to four players ages 10 and up. List for 30 bucks. You can find it typically between 20 and 24 dollars. This is a ultra cool little card game that kind of recreates World War II aerial combat. It's just awesome. There is no board. You play on your tabletop. The cards are actually the airplanes. All the stats are on them. They've got a firing arc, um, all the moving lines, and each one has a deck of maneuver cards. And that's how you move your, uh, maneuver your planes around. Way, way cool. There's probably like four expansions out for this already. But just finally, about three weeks or so ago, they put out the Wings of War miniatures. And I saw some pics of this online, and they are really cool. We actually have pictures of them. Have you looked at our site? I don't look at our site. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> A listener, actually, because we did Duel in the Dark last uh, he put, last Goober, he has pictures of the uh, Wings of War miniatures on our show notes oh, from so episode 30. really isn't news anymore? <laughs> okay, fine. I see how you are. Okay, well, I'm finishing. I'm, I'm spacing on on the user who did it. I, I apologize. I, I wish I could give credit where credit is due. I'll put it in the show notes for sure. But, um, yeah, there are pictures on our website even okay, already. Okay, well, I didn't <laughs> see that. Dang it. Okay, well, I'm going to continue anyway for those of you who might not have wandered over to that section of the site, like somebody else we know. So, anyway, the miniatures just came out a few weeks ago. There's only 12 of them. They're about 12 bucks a piece. You can find them for 8 to 9 bucks. They're individual. They're packed individually. I've heard rumor of like a four-pack, but oh. I haven't seen these anywhere. So in each Wings of War miniatures pack, you get the pre-painted pewter and plastic miniature, and they're, they look really cool. I haven't seen them like physically in my hands, mm -hmm. but what I've seen looks cool as hell. They come with a clear plastic gaming base that all the information is on that clear base. So you've got the firing arc, the movement lines, all the stats, um, and it comes with a full deck of maneuvering cards specifically for that plane. Oh, that's cool. I which, didn't know that. Yeah, which is really cool. And it comes with four clear, pa uh, bleh, clear plastic altitude pegs. So you can actually adjust the altitude of your little miniature as you're playing the game. It just looks really, really cool. Right now, the 12 figs that are out are all planes from the first, uh, famous first aces set, but they do envision bringing more out from the other sets. So if, if this is a game you've played and we're just kind of wanting to take it to the next level, go out and look for these minis. If you haven't tried this game, Give it a try. It's really cool, especially with these ultra-cool minis. I know they're popular. I would imagine they'll probably go straight into production with the second bunch pretty yeah. soon because one of my friends who runs a little game business uh, said that he tried to order some, and uh, <laughs> Alliance and several of the big distributors were already sold out. There's specifically like two or three of the planes <clears throat> that sold out instantly. Oh, really? I mean, they were so popular, <laughs> you just couldn't get them, period. I need my Sopwith Camel. Yeah, exactly. Must have it. So that's my kind of news <laughs> and notes that I really stole from somebody else, apparently. You've been scooped by one of our listeners. Fine. But the pictures are cool. That I wasn't bringing it up to bust your chops as much as just to say they're actually pictures. Of, Sweet. Uh, we actually even have well, pictures on the hey, site. Maybe this week I'll go to our site and check it out. <laughs> I would encourage you to do that, Dave. <laughs> 
So my news uh, for this week is a game called Leaping Lemmings. Uh, now this is, you know, it already sounds pretty like a, much like a silly type game, but the game company that makes this is probably going to surprise you because this is not the kind of game they're they're known for. So the designers are Rick Young and John Ponsicki. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. And the publisher is GMT Games. Now GMT wow. Games does mostly sort of like historical or war, war type. games. Yeah. Or much more in that sort of vein. It's a two to six player game. It plays in about an hour. Um, the retail on this one's going to be about $35, but you can pre-order it right now for $25. Um, so here's a little backstory um, on the game. Uh, Leaping Lemmings is a humorous hobby or family game for two to six players. Each player controls a cloned clan of lemmings that have been spe specially trained to compete with other lemming clans, all trying to scurry down a canyon and hurl themselves over a cliff. Sweet. <laughs> Distance and style points are important. One lemming diving with style and Elan is worth as many as five more mundane divers. But beware the hungry eagle circling overhead or your lemmings might not even make it over the cliff edge. <laughs> <laughs> so the, to me, the coolest part of this is they've taken sort of the, the old school cardboard counter, what you would think of as a prototype, stereotypical war game type game, uh -huh. and applied it to this wacky ass theme which is you know lemmings jumping off a cliff so your object is it's a victory point game most victory points wins the game to earn points you try to dive your lemmings over the cliff each player controls 10 different lemmings um you you know they have the little standard cardboard counters with the movement and everything that's great um it's it's fairly new i know the announcement for the pre-orders and stuff just uh, hit the board game geek fairly recently too, so this is okay. news that's fairly hot off the press. <laughs> um, you get 104 die cut cardboard counters, six clan player aid cards, a quick start player aid card, 37 movement cards, and 18 special action cards. Um, so I'd, I'd encourage you to, to maybe check out or or dive in. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. And, and Just take a leap out. of faith and try this guy because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really cool to me. Yeah, um, very. So lastly, before we move on, um, my second item of note here is because you might have noticed the little sponsor ad at the beginning, we're sort of opening the door here to the possibility of other sponsors. We have Time Well Spent as our first sponsor, but we're hoping that they'll be the first of, of many. So if you have you know, a game company or any sort of product or service game related that you think would be cool we have a, a sizable enough audience that you know we we're actually astonishing as it, as it sounds to even us it amazes us you know we have a decent sized audience here and if you're interested in in you know helping sponsor the show and making sure that this show keeps on going uh, you know send us an email at steven at the spiel.net or david spiel.net and we'd love to, to talk to you and see if we can can even line up more so absolutely just, we just want you to know that we are we're not just a one sponsor kind of show and we're we're definitely looking for others if anybody is interested to to know that we're we're willing to listen if you're wanting to talk to us about exactly such and, and stay tuned a little later in the show we're going to give you a lot more information about our first sponsor time well spent um, some great information about them and some exciting news for you the listener yes some with really cool possible, prizes possible prizes coming your way <laughs> so that's going to so, be sweet look forward to that later on the list over a decade ago we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, life would be awfully boring without new games to play. 
let's see which games get crossed off the list. Okay, well, the first game off the list for this episode is Shogun. Shogun was co-published in 2006 by Queen and Rio Grande Games. It was designed by Dirk Hinn. It's for three to five players ages 12 and up. List for $65. You can find it online anywhere for between $39 and $52. Bucks. Shogun is a re-themed version of an earlier game called Wallenstein that was published by Queen in 2002, just in case anybody needed that info. So let's just jump right in for Shogun. As warlords in 16th century Japan, each player assumes the role of a great daimyo, attempting to secure a position of dominance for his clan. To be successful, you will need to deploy your armies with great skill, develop your realm by building theaters, temples, and castles, tax your provinces fairly, confiscate rice from a few provinces to feed the people in all your provinces throughout the long winter, and finally, mobilize your armies to expand your kingdom. The daimyo who best balances all these tasks will become the next shogun. That just sounds so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and trust me, you do have to balance all those very well. <laughs> so in game terms, the object of the game is, through all those mechanics, to be the player at the end of the game who has the most victory points. It's that simple. So let's just jump in. This is kind of a big game, so I'm going to start and we'll go as quick as we can. Let's look at the contents. It has a really cool double-sided game board. It's kind of an elongated game board. Um, the five central regions of Japan are shown on the game, represented on the game board, and each of these regions is divided into nine provinces. There's a bunch of tracks on the board. There's a victory point track going around the outside. There's a rice track running up one side. There's a track that keeps track of special... Did I just say a track that keeps track of? <laughs> yes, That's what did. I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that track is for player turn order. There's a special place for events, and there's a track at the bottom to keep track of all the events or the actions. Okay, we're, we're done with the game board. But is there a track to keep track of the tracks? There should be a track track. Okay. Would that be a tracking track? Oh, I don't know. man. So let's get away from the board and move on to the cards. There's province cards. There's one province card for each province on the game board. There's war chest cards. These are cards that you're going to use in the game to bid for player turn order. There's some special cards that give each that give the players actions. Uh, the players are going to get one of these each round. There's also 10 action cards. These are kind of unique because you don't use the action cards to actually take actions. You use the action cards to decide the order in which the actions will be taken. Kind of wacky, but cool. Um, there's 12 event cards. Each round or each turn is going to have one event happen, and it'll come from this deck of 12 cards. Each player at the beginning of the game gets a daimyo card, and they'll use this card to mark um, on the board which order they are in turn player order. So if you're the first player, it'll be in the first slot so on and so forth. Um, there's individual playing boards. These are double-sided. One side is for the players to um, get the setup ready. You like put your troops out there and you decide which provinces you want. The other side is used during the game to determine um, which provinces you want to do which actions in. There's a truckload of little colored cubes representing your armies. Um, some of them are green. These are the neutral farmer armies that are going to cause you some serious grief throughout <laughs> the game. Um, there's some really cool little wooden chests, and they represent the currency of the game. 
There's also some little point markers, one for the Victory Point track and one for the Rice track. And there's a truckload of little tiles representing the buildings, the castles, the temples, and the theaters that you can build throughout the game. And the coolest thing is the Battle Tower, which is really cool. At first glance, it looks just like a dice tower, but if you look really close, it's way cooler than that. Throughout the game, you're going to be dropping armies through this thing, and there's little things in there that catch some of them. So all the armies you drop into the tower aren't necessarily going to come out the tower. They're going to get stuck in there. So instead of being slanted like a dice tower to make the stuff go down through it, they're sort of perfect. They're Right, uh, there's horizontal. several little steps of things <laughs> where they can catch them. It's really cool. And then, of course, once things get caught up in there, they might, at a later turn, decide to loosen and come out to affect the particular <laughs> battle. So it's it's really pretty cool. Okay, the preparation and the setup for the game is actually really easy. Once You just need to decide which side of the board you want to use. I did say it was double-sided. Um, once you've done that, make sure you have um, a deck of um, province cards that match the side of the board that you're on. Um, everybody gets their set number of materials, their little armies, their starting money, all that stuff. And then the setup as far as choosing your provinces, there's two ways. You can do a manual way or a predetermined way. We opted for the predetermined way. Since this was our first time, we wanted it to be as, as balanced as it could possibly be, just in case we you know pick poorly in our <laughs> setup. So we went ahead and did that way. Then you need to, before you start the game, you get to load that battle tower. So all the players take seven of their army cubes, 10 of the neutral guys, and you drop them through the tower. And this kind of loads it up with some of those cubes that get stuck in there before you even start the game. Any cubes that fall out in the tray, those are returned to everybody's supply before the game starts. And then one last thing before the game starts, those event cards, those 12 event cards I was telling you about, you want to shuffle those up and then take the top four and lay them in a row face up beside the board. Those are the possible events that are going to happen during the first turn. So all the players will get to see what those are. So the whole game of Shogun plays over the course of two years, or two rounds. Each year is subdivided into four phases, representing the, the seasons. seasons. Spring, summer, fall, and winter. Spring through fall, those three seasons are full game turns, and winter is basically a scoring round. There's some other things you do in there, but it's basically a scoring round. So the game is three rounds, score, three more rounds, and score. So six turns, exactly. and you're basically done. That is it. So of course, each round has six phases. So we'll go through those real quick. The first phase is to lay out the action cards. You've got those 10 action cards. You shuffle them up. You lay them out in a, in a single file row. The first five are face up. The second five are face down. These are This is now the order that you're guaranteed that you have to take these actions for this turn. And five of them are secret. You won't know those until you, until you start taking the actions of the first five. So that's pretty cool. Second thing you need to do is lay out those special action cards. These do things like... If you collect rice, you'll get more rice. Maybe it'll give a bonus to an attacker or the defender. But those go in their little places out on the board. And remember, each space is numbered, one through five. And these are these coincide with the player turn order. We'll describe how that happens later. So once you have those the action cards put out and the special cards put out, then we come to the meat of the game, the phase that is planning your individual actions for this turn. And this is a brain herder the very first time you do it. Because there's, you've got your board in front of you. It shows a picture of each of the actions. You have in your hand a province card matching each of the provinces that you have your starting armies in out on the board. So what you'll be doing in this phase is taking those provinces cards, one, one each 
onto each of those action spaces. So basically deciding which which action is going to take, take place, place and, and which where. part. Exactly. So if you want one province over here to actually, if you want to deploy some armies to there, you're going to need to take that province card and lay it face down on the action for deploying five armies. And again, just to reiterate, the order that you flip those 10 out is going to determine when that's going to happen. Exactly. So. And you're not going to know five of them. <laughs> when you're doing this, there's already five that you're not, that you will know and five that you won't know. So this is just crazy cool. So you can only really plan half yeah. of your turn the exactly. way you would ideally <laughs> want to plan it. You have to kind of hope exactly. on the other ones that right. you plan right. So I'm going to go through these 10 actions really quick here. Uh, the first three actions all have to do with building buildings, castles, temples, theaters. They cost an amount of chess anywhere from one to three chess. The only thing to mention here is that each province can only have one of each type of building. So if you throw a castle in a province, there can't be any more castles in that particular province. The provinces the provinces can house from one to three different buildings, just depending upon the size of the and province. It says on the card. It says, right, says that right on the card. <laughs> the next two things have to do with taking stuff from the provinces. That would be confiscating rice and collecting taxes. Um, once again, the province card shows you just how much rice and just how much taxes you can collect from these provinces. And this doesn't come without its dangers or its risks, because if you tax or take too much rice from a province, that could could spawn or spur on a revolt, which is not pretty because then you might lose your province, which is painful. <laughs> so the next three actions are deploying armies. There's three actions that cover this. One allows you to deploy five, one allows you to deploy three, and the last one to deploy one, but then move some out of that province that you just deployed to into an adjacent province. So those are the deployments, and they once again cost anywhere from one to three treasure chests to do that. Um, in general, not unlike a game that you guys are all probably familiar with, Risk, whenever you're moving troops, um, they move from one province to an adjacent province, you always have to leave at least one army cube in the province that they were, that they're coming from. So, Last two actions, and that's the funnest ones, the move and battle actions. There's two of them. They're identical, except for they are lettered A and B. The purpose for this is because they come up in that track of actions in a random order, so you're never sure whether action or battle A is going to happen before battle B or vice versa, or that they both they might both be secret in those last five, and you have no idea which, which one's going to come up. Very cool. So the very final thing that you can do is bid for turn order. There's one spot left for an 11th card on your little player board. This is where you're going to use those treasure chest cards that we talked about. You're going to play one of these face down onto the spot on the board for the bid. And then at a later turn, you're going to determine who has the highest bid. We'll talk about that in a second. So now you've done what usually takes, what, each round took us 10 or 15 minutes to yeah. sit here and plan <laughs> this phase out. It's crazy. It's a lot of fun. But that's the the bulk of the time in thinking and strategizing is going to be right in, there. You got your province cards. Where the heck am I? What do I want to happen? Where in my turn? And <laughs> exactly. And it all and everybody's doing it at the same time. So you're not just twiddling your thumbs, going blah, blah, blah. yeah, wait for somebody right, else. Exactly. Right. So that's done. We've got only three more phases, and these three phases go bam, bam, bam. They just happen really fast. 
The first one is determine what event is going to happen this turn. Pretty easy. Those four that we laid face up, shuffle them up upside down, turn one up and lay it on the board. This tells you what overarching event is going to take place for this turn. And there's just all kinds of things like bonuses to certain things or penalties to other things. Yeah, it could be like if you have a castle in your province, then you get to add an extra cube to right. the tower if somebody fights you. Or... Exactly. So all kinds of neat little things like that. So once you've determined that one single event card, now we get to, deter we get to determine the turn order, which is really, really a cool part. Um, you secretly have placed one of your little treasure chest cards um, on your board. At this time, everybody reveals them. Whoever has the most treasure gets the first choice of special ability cards. They can pick any one they want, but remember the special ability cards are in spaces with numbers on them. So if, like I say, I want the special ability where I get a bonus for defending my province, maybe that's in the fourth spot. So now I want that card, but it's going to guarantee me that I'm going to be the fourth. fourth player to go. Whereas if I had really, really wanted to be the first player, I might just be forced to take whatever ability is in that first spot, you know, not caring what it is, but I just have to go first this turn. So you might be bidding just to get the turn order that you want, or you might be bidding to just get, to get the action. ability. Best case scenario, it might both. line up that you get both. But. Exactly. It's really cool. Now I'm going to stop for a second and explain, since there's an earlier version of this game, Wallenstein, there are some differences. The one major difference is, is that Wallenstein did not have these special action cards. Oh, okay. They didn't exist, and it was just random. Turn order was just completely random every time. <laughs> After playing Shogun, I, I can't imagine this game without this particular mechanic. It is so cool how the turn order and the special action blends all together with the other actions and the way you uh, come up with your strategy that I just can't imagine this game without those. But that's just want to let you know that's the main, what I consider the difference. main difference between the two. Exactly. So once you've got the turn order um, determined, then you actually finally get to carry out those 10 actions. And you're going to do it in, in turn order, one at a time, and You'll just take out those there's These happen in like three seconds because there's nothing you can do to change anything. Everybody, you've already decided exactly what's happening. You just rattle these off, take the actions, and then basically you just set up for another turn. That's a whole turn of Shogun. The only round that's different is the fourth round of each turn, which is winter, which is the scoring round. And the first thing you do in winter is decide how much rice that each player is going to lose. Um, Basically what you do is, if you remember those event cards that determine the special event for each round, on the bottom of those, there's a little rice bowl with a negative number on there that shows you how many, how many um, units of rice you're going to lose for this turn. Once everybody has reduced their rice on the little rice track down there, now you have to have enough rice left to be able to, to afford one rice <laughs> for each one of your provinces, which is actually pretty tough. Because the only way you can get rice is just by is one time per you know one chance per round one province, and you have to guess sometimes what is. I think there was a um, a card that has you losing up to seven rice before yeah. you even get a chance to start feeding your other provinces. Right. And if you can't afford, if you can't feed all your provinces, then there's going to be a random number of those provinces that are absolutely going to revolt. And Which you're gonna, means you might lose them. Yeah, and you might lose them. And this is a horrible time to lose them because you're just getting ready to score <laughs> them. So it's bad. So once you've dealt with all the revolts and all that stuff, 
you finally get to the scoring. And the scoring is actually very simple. One point for every province that you have, one point for every building that you have, and then you go ahead and look at the regions, not just the provinces, the five different regions, and see who has the most castles, the most theaters, and the most temples in those regions, and those people are awarded bonus points. It's very easy. They're color coded. Yeah, so they're it's, color coded. It's at a glance to tell. It is. It's it's really cool. So the only one thing I kind of left out on purpose to save till the end is resolving the battles in the battle tower. There's all different kinds of ways that battles can happen, but they kind of all work the same way. All armies that are involved in a battle are all picked up in, in your hand, along with any cubes that are in the tray from previous battles, and they're just dropped into the tower. All the cubes that come out, of the, of the people who are participating, you count those numbers of cubes that come out in the tray. Whoever has the most wins. The loser has to remove them all from the tray, put them back in their supply. Unfortunately, the winner also has to lose a number of cubes equal to the same number of cubes that the loser lost. So if it so, was 10 to 2, then the loser, obviously with 2, chucks his 2 back in his supply. With 10, if I was the winner, I would have to take 2, put them back in my supply, and the 8 left over can now go back out on the board in the province that we were fighting over. The only other kind of weirdness is that you'll come into some um, battles where the farmers or the neutral guys might actually be on the side of the defender. So you actually get to count these kind of like wilds. So the green cubes might count for the defender. And it's it's just really, really cool mechanic. Or if you're attacking a province that isn't owned yet already, the farmers are going to put up a fight on their own. So exactly. it'll be your forces against one farmer or a couple farmers or just depends upon the, the situation on the board but it would be you against the green instead of you against another player right exactly so that's that's pretty much shogun in a nutshell <laughs> if you can call that a nutshell it's a big um, nut. yeah exactly a couple things we wanted to include because we had some listeners send in some information um, or some ideas on what they thought we should do that we think is kind of cool and unfortunately I'm drawing a blank oh right right we'll, now we'll include their names in the show notes good. I, I'm spacing their cool. names so, so the first idea was that if we play a game that the uh, board game geek has some files on that we think would be helpful in learning and or playing this game that we'll go ahead and let you know about them and the rules for Shogun are very straightforward, very clear. However, there are a couple files that I think would help you out. There's the Shogun Quick Reference um, version 4 file that I would check out, and the Shogun Player Aid Actions version 2 that I would check out. I think if you printed those up ahead of time and gave them to your players, it would really help, especially out um, towards the beginning of the game. So that's really neat. Um, the other suggestion that a listener had was um, so many uh, of these uh, board games you can find online versions to play, like at Brett Spielwelt and um, other online sources uh, for playing these games. And I don't know, it's one of those things where you guys are smarter than we are. It's like, you send these suggestions and we're like, duh, that makes so much <laughs> sense. Why didn't we think of that? Right. So, um, 
in for example, Shogun um, is available at SpielbyWeb.com. You can uh, go online and play it there, which is really cool. If you if you're listening and you like what you hear about Shogun, it's awesome to be able to go to someplace yeah, like yeah. SpielbyWeb.com, give it a you run, can give it a run, and then decide you know if you really want to buy it or not. So it's exactly. kind of that stepping stone. You know, you hear about it, sounds cool. You get to play it online, still sounds cool. Well, then you might want to actually plunk down your hard earned cash right, exactly. to, to buy it, or you might go, whew, okay, I played that and. I, I totally think those steel guys are <laughs> stupid, and that wasn't worth anything. Cool. Um, but those are thanks to, to yeah, those yeah. listeners, and we'll definitely for those give credit where credit is due in the in the show notes. Exactly. So, having just played Shogun, I now know exactly why it gets all the rave reviews. This game is ultra cool. It's a it's a mesh of a couple mechanics that I have never seen put together before. The one being the typical quote unquote American you know, war type of thing like Risk or Axis and Allies where you're moving your um, troops in and trying to conquer yeah. stuff. And then the typical um, Euro mechanics of taking actions and having points and scoring points and stuff like that. Not only is this a blend of, the, of these two, it's like a damn near perfect blend. It was just really, really cool. I think the to me the thing that sets it apart the most is that it's probably it's probably hard to ga- gauge this from hearing the rules in such a, a shotgun method, right? But it really plays fast, and it's not that much more complicated than something like Risk. There's, no, there's there is an extra added layer of complexity without a doubt, but. Um, that it's not a huge jump in complexity. The, the complexity comes from the strategizing about what action do I take and when do I want to take it. And the actions are so simple in terms of, you know, you pay this and you build this, or you pay this and you put troops out on the board. That And and the randomness of, of using the battle tower instead of dice is just a, a really unique way, I think, right. to uh, resolve the battles that just gives it uh, a flavor that is hard to hard to put into words in terms of yeah, exactly. comparing it to something else because it is very and I um, think I think we were both really surprised at the tower that it wasn't just 100% completely random. Mm. I mean, the game plays if you show up with 10 armies compared to somebody's two armies, you're most likely going to win that battle. Mm-hmm. But nothing is ever set in stone. And it's that question mark of, well, it's not 100% guaranteed that just makes it really cool. But it's not just 100% throw them all in and who the heck knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it sort of achieves the same thing that dice rolls would, where if you took you know 10 versus 2 and you're rolling a truckload of dice, your chances of winning are pretty good. But I love the fact that you could throw all of your 10 and the two other ones in, and you might only win 3 to 2. Right. And the other ones are stuck in there, which could end up helping you in later battles, but may really hose you at the moment because you needed though, you know, a lot of those cubes to come out and to defend that place because right. someone else, you know, your opponent might have the perfect attack card to suddenly attack that space because he just anticipated you taking it from him. So I love the fact that that randomness can, can both help, it can help you on later turns, but it can really hose you if you needed a lot of those cubes to come out. Right uh, on a particular battle time, I think that's that was really fun. Yeah, it was really neat. I know there was a couple times when um, I had a bunch of my cubes come out in a battle that I was not involved in. Hmm. So my cubes are now laying in the tray, ready to go in the next time. I'm like, well, 
if the next battle is mine, I get all my cubes from the province plus all those cubes in there, right. which is ultra cool. But so, usually what happens is somebody else goes first and my cubes all get picked up and get stuck <laughs> back in the damn tower again. But it can skew the odds. I mean, on, the, on right. the board, you might only, it might be an even up battle, you know, two against two, but you have four of those in the tray. So you're like, wow, now's the time to do that. If, if you had planned right and have the battle exactly. at the right time, like Dave was just saying. Exactly. I think my favorite moment in the game, though, <laughs> Was Dave the light bulb coming on over Dave's head and realizing that there was only one way to get money in the game? <laughs> I think your quote was like, "Now, how do you get money in this game?" And Francie and I were both like, "Well, the, one of the actions is you collect treasure from one province." And he just looks up and goes, "Oh." <laughs> because someone had decided uh, I guess maybe you didn't really cover that in detail but you get to points where because you don't have enough money right. to do all the actions that you choose to put some of those treasure chest cards in place just um, as sort of bluffs but also to indicate that you're not going to do that particular action exactly. and Dave just decided that he wasn't going to collect treasure yeah. for an entire turn and basically the money is the engine of the game. You have to have yeah. currency in order to do most of the actions. So for that turn, <laughs> I was neither building any buildings, deploying any armies. Needless to say, it was painful. Yeah. <laughs> His little black samurais were wiped <laughs> off of <laughs> part of the map pretty quickly. Exactly. Like, Help! <laughs> but what was awesome about this game is that at the beginning, you built up a fairly hefty lead, and mm -hmm. I, through complete dorkness, did belt. I was in the rear end big time. By the time we were at the end of the game, I think there was five points separating all of us. Yes, yes. Which is which is excellent. I mean, yeah. one misstep. I think that was the cool thing. I mean, you, you any misstep will punish you, right. but there's so many ways that you can make missteps that I started to kind of stumble at the end and boy, everybody caught up with me in a well, heartbeat. In this game, a mistake is like has a domino effect from hell. Yeah. You make one little thing and it affects everything else for that rest of that turn. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. it's painful. And the, I guess the last thing I would say is the, the revolutions I think are really interesting and in having to, because it's a conquest game, uh, the more you are able to kind of spread out because I think I was I had way more provinces. Right. It is just really difficult to make sure you have enough rice to keep all the provinces fed. And then when it gets to the scoring round, you're almost guaranteed that you're going to have some revolts. And you just better hope that the revolts happen in the spots that you have a lot of guys to drop into the little right. battle tower or you might end up losing. That's what really exactly. hurt me in the last scoring <laughs> round is I was like, I'm okay unless this province or this province has a revolt. And exactly those provinces are the ones that nailed me, and that I, I like that balancing uh, mechanic built in. That you know, it even as you expand, it becomes harder and harder to keep everything together and right. keep it all going. Um, that I really like that aspect too. Yeah, I think this is an excellent game. If it's something you haven't tried, take our word for it. Yeah, get this guy; it's a great game. Don't don't let the extra little bit of complexity scare you off from from what we describe. Because if you're a fan of of Risk or that style game, it's not really that big of a step up. And even if right. you're not a fan of Risk, I think this game might draw you in in a way that. The right, standard well, five-hour game of Risk wouldn't. Yeah, Francie played this game with us. She would not be somebody who would sit down and play no, Risk with us. No. And at the end of the game, she was like, that was really cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so that's that says a lot for the game, definitely. Definitely. But cool. So that's the first game <laughs> off the list, Shogun. <laughs> Second game, much more brief game than, <laughs> than the first one, is Landlord. Um, it came out in 1992. Friedman Fries is the designer. Um, it, it was published by uh, Rio Grande Games and Abaca Spila 
Um, it's a two to six player game, and it's about a 30 minute game. Probably could even go faster than that if you're playing with with more people. Um, so here's the little rundown on on landlord. Uh, you're gonna build a, build apartment houses, rent them to tenants, and collect the rent. Sounds simple, but in landlord, every card gives you two options for play. One side is an apartment, and the other has tenants, roofs, cellars, renovations, and special actions. Move the wealthy tenants to your apartments and put the deadbeats in your opponents. You can even bomb buildings, but don't get caught because jail awaits those who who are careless. <laughs> so it's it's a wacky. I mean, Friedman Freeze. I oh, yeah. you'd expect nothing less from right. Friedman Freeze. They're always <laughs> wacky, and this game is certainly no exception. He did uh, Fearsome Floors, Fearsome Floors, Funny, uh, Friends. Funny Friends, all the alliterative uh, yeah, games. Exactly. Are his. He's, what's his new one? Um, I'm surprised Formidable it wasn't foes, like, Formid- right. I'm surprised it wasn't like one. Lucky Landlords or yeah, this was something strange. Hit him before his alliterative it, stage, right. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he still had the blue hair. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> um, so it's a card game. It comes with a deck of 110 cards. The back of each card represents a single apartment floor of a building, and the fronts have other building sections, events, or tenants, um, or action cards. Um, so I'm going to just kind of describe all the different kinds of cards and then the, the basic gameplay. So um, the tenant cards. On the top right of the card, it shows... Um, the number, a number, and that's the rent that they're going to pay. On the bottom left, there's a building icon with a number inside. This icon shows the maximum height of the building that that tenant will occupy. Um, so if there was a two, that means that that tenant would only go in, will only live in a two-story building or less. Um, each, uh, there's also a goofy illustration and a title like the pensioner or the freaks, <laughs> celebrities, or mother and child um, on each of the cards. Uh, most tenants also have special text, which will grant them special abilities or place certain restrictions on how the card can be played. Lastly, the cards are oriented both horizontally and vertically. Vertical tenants take up more uh, more than one floor of a building and thus can only be played in appropriate spots. So, you know, it might be a three, but you're going to have to have three open floors if it's a vertical one, and they're going to take up that whole, basically, almost that whole building. Right. I think, um, so that's the tenant cards. Improvement and renovations. Um, these are cellars and rooftops that can be added to give you extra space for your tenants to live without actually adding an extra floor to the build um, to your building. Um, now there's special cards, and there are a ton of these. Um, there are bombs, demolition, moving, alibi, murder, court, police, lunatics, eviction, broker, and recycle. And most of these cards are all just meant to make your opponent's life a, a living hell. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you try to you know knock their buildings down, or move their tenants out, or evict them, or if you see them because you, their cards like the murder card, that, that's one way that you can uh, use to get rid of squatters, which we'll get into <laughs> in a minute here. Um, that's a particular kind of tenant, which is terrible to have um, in your building. Uh, that if they catch you murdering someone, they can call the police, and you might end up going to jail, which is really bad because it's hard to uh, hard to run your real estate empire if you're in jail. Exactly. Not impossible, <laughs> but uh, uh, makes it a little more difficult. Um, so that's the basic kinds of cards in the game. Um, the setup is very easy. Um, you remove the jail card because it's only used if someone is actually in jail, and you set it aside. Each player is going to start with one roof card and five cards. The rest of the deck becomes the draw pile, um, and each player also starts with five dollars in money. Um, does the game the game doesn't come with money though? Does no, it? they actually it, ask you to keep scoring a piece of that's right, paper. That's right. That's um, right. But you could use poker chips or play money or however else you wanted to to do that. So here's a typical game turn. 
Beginning with the player to the left of the dealer and continuing clockwise, each player on your turn is going to do the following things. You're going to examine your apartment buildings for squatters. Um, you're going to play as many cards as, as you want. Then you're going to collect rent from your tenants. And then you're going to buy as many cards as you choose and you can afford. So examining the apartments. Basically, this is your search for squatters in your in your slumlord <laughs> buildings here. Um, any apartment that you own where squatters have taken up residence must be dealt with. The highest paying tenant um, is going to move out of an, any building that has a squatter in it. Now, this tenant could be moved into another building that you own if you have a legal spot to put it in. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If you don't have a spot for that tenant and your opponent does, that tenant's going to move across the street and take up residence in a spot um, in one of your opponent's other buildings. You would get to choose, if you're playing with multiple people, which building he's going to end up going into. If there aren't any legal spots for those for that tenant, then the tenant goes away and gets put in the discard pile. So that's phase one, looking for squatters and dealing with the consequences of the squatters. Um, the reason squatters are bad is any building with uh, squatters in it, uh, those people are not going to pay rent because they're outraged at you letting people squat in the apartment. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, that's really a bad deal if, if you have some high-paying rent customers in there. Um, so that's phase one. Phase two is playing cards. You can play as many cards as you want. This is It's very much kind of a free-form, freewheeling kind of game. Um, buildings, however, must be complete in order for you to collect rent. A building is complete only when it has a roof. Um, once a roof has been played, however, you can't add more floors to it. So the timing of how you're playing your floors out and your roofs matters in, in how you're going to play your different apartment buildings. Right. And you can have multiple apartment buildings. So and you, you can always, have a, a one-story one. Sorry, I cut you off. No, sorry, I say you always have enough cards to complete a building because remember the backside of every single card yeah. is one of the floors of an apartment. That's, that's <laughs> the most painful part is that the trick is that you must play cards from your hand as the floors to your building, which means that you're not going to be able to use every card or every tenant or every action in the way that you would probably most like to play it. You're going to end up having to use some of those cards just to make your buildings so that you can put the big juicy ones in there. Um, and the, the other thing to keep in mind is that you can play tenants or build buildings on yourself or your opponents. So you could build a building and put a squatter in it just to make your, you know, your opponent's life really difficult as well. Um, so that's phase two. Phase three is collecting rent. Uh, any tenants in your buildings will pay rent according to the top right number unless the text of the tenant card contradicts or supersedes uh, that number. Um, the only exception to this is the squatters. Like I said, if they're squatters, they're not going to pay any rent. Or if you're in jail, you're only going to get uh, $1 per building. So right. you might have multiple, multiple tenants, but you're only going to get $1 per building, which is very painful and a reason to get out of jail as quick yeah. as you can. Um, so that's collecting rent. We're almost to the end here. That's phase three. Phase four is buying cards. Um, you can buy as many as you have money, but remember in the end, this is a game about money. Um, you're trying to end up with the most money at the end of the game. So there's a sort of, you know, how much do I spend to keep my hand replenished and how much do I keep to, to try to actually win the game? The first five cards that you buy cost $1 each, and then the next five cost $2 each. And I think that's the limit is 10. Is that right? Or am I making that up? I don't think there's any limit. It's but just, it's just everything just after, after, everything after, five everything is after two. five is two. Okay. Um, so basically it's lather, rinse, and repeat right. with, with each of the turns. The game ends when the draw deck is exhausted. Um, 
and uh, you count up money, and the person with the most money is going to be the the champion slumlord of of the game. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> um, now, here's a couple of sort of special notes. Now that we've kind of gone over the whole game, there's certain action cards that be, can be canceled by others, and certain cards can even be played out of turn. There's a small chart that this is included with the rules, but I think it proves to be pretty inadequate for as often as they come up during the game. The game is fast paced and really wacky. Uh, you can't get too attached to any of your buildings <laughs> or your tenants because they're going to change hand multiple times in the course of the game. In fact, you may end up blowing up your own apartments just to get rid of some <laughs> some pesky squatters that you don't have any other way to get rid exactly. of. Um, Landlord's downfall to me is the lack of clear iconography on the tenant cards to illustrate what their special abilities do. And then the lack of clear explanation on the action cards themselves to make clear right. how and when they're used in the game. Most of the confusion is quickly cleared up once you've played a turn or two, but to me that makes it all the more puzzling why they didn't take the time to work out those bugs in just kind right. of the card design before the game was produced. Despite these, uh, what I would consider obvious flaws, I think Landlord's still a lot of fun to play. Um, the more players, the better, though I think it held up really well as a two-player game. Yeah. I didn't think that it, it was bad as a two-player game because that's how we played it. If you like light, funky games with a lot of interaction, then I would really encourage you to check out Landlord. After all, you know how many games let you play a slumlord guilt-free? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know Stephen liked it because he could murder the musician. <laughs> <laughs> when I love that the musician not, uh, sent all the other tenants packing. If the musician moved in, the rest that's of them... That's it. We're out. gone. Gone, gone. Not period. living with those guys. <laughs> yeah, just just the thought of blowing up a building with the small children in it or the family is like that's just so wrong. Not but, politically correct, yeah, but you know, but very fun. It's very fun. <laughs> so, what what's your uh, impression or opinion, and what what can you throw oh, in here? I, I like this game a lot. It was great. It's one of those definitely you have to classify it as a screw your neighbor type of game, absolutely, because. All those action cards are in there for one reason and one reason only, and that's just to blow up, murder, kill, trash, make people move out. There's hardly any good ones that say, play this on yourself and wonderful things happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the case. Yep. So it's, it's a, it was designed to be evil and it's really fun. Like you said, the, uh, the artwork on the cards, um, they're, it's black and white game, but it's really fun, cartoony looking, mm -hmm. looking artwork and it's, it's really cool. I, I enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to playing this ever since we got it how many, five years yeah, ago, whatever yeah, the heck it was. Yeah, for as long as it's been out. This yeah. has taken a while to get off the list. And, uh, you know, my I knew there were warning signs when you showed me the rules and we were looking at it. And it says, you might want to familiarize yourself with right. the action and tenant cards before you actually play the game, right. which indicates that the action cards and the tenant cards really don't do their job. Absolutely. If you have to sit there and sort of memorize what they all do before you actually play the game. So that's the one knock. I'd put on it, right. but it's so light and fast that if you really, I mean, if you spent a good 20 minutes looking over the game, at least one person mm -hmm. before you started, any of the major issues that are going to come right. up are easily and resolved. common sense usually prevails yeah. once you start doing something and it makes sense, but if the cards were a little bit better with the icons, or if they just included a couple quick reference cards yeah. that just... Each player could have one and explain everything. That would be cool, but didn't detract from the fun. If you just want something kind of really goofy and quick, fast-paced, fun, where you can actually have a lot of player interaction, <laughs> this this is the game for you. Yep. <laughs> so that was the second game off the list is Landlord. Um, both of the games that we covered off the list are available at timewellspent.org. Our Lovely first sponsor of the spiel here. Um, Timewellspent.org is a small uh, family-run business. It's been open since 
2003, I think. Um, Dave and Pamela Jones um, are the owners, and and Jared Wilson is one of their um, trusty employees as well. Um, Dave uh, founded this game group in Broomfield, Colorado, and that's, I think, what kind of inspired him to even get into the game business from talking to him, which is really cool. He had such success and saw so many people were interested in these games that... Just decided to start his own business. Decided to start his own business, and and it's going really like gangbusters for him, which is, is cool. They carry a wide assortment of games, including harder to find imports as well as the standards that you'd expect right, exactly. you know, a game store to carry um the prices are really competitive i think with very uh several of the larger online retailers and they even do price matching oh that's, which i think yeah, is, that's is very awesome cool. um so if you find better prices elsewhere you can you could even go there to timewellspent.org and get right. one of the prices i know we've we yeah just we've had got an order in exactly um, their their turnaround time on their orders is fantastic i ordered one day it was already shipped out that very same day it arrived here very quickly everything was in you know perfect perfect condition which which is great. I can't say the same for all the packages that I've re- that <laughs> yeah, I've received. Yeah, that's not always a guarantee. So so that that was very cool. Um, I think the the coolest thing is because they are such a small company is that they put such an emphasis on customer service. Absolutely. Um, the front page of their website is constantly updated with the arrival of new games and new shipments. And if you ever have a problem, you know sometimes problems do crop up. Right. It's how you respond to the problem to me that, right. that really matters. Right. And they've always been really responsive yeah. to that. You kind can of guarantee stuff. Dave and Jared are going to go out of their way to make sure <laughs> everything is right. Yeah. Um, we have a really cool uh, start off to kick off our sponsorship uh, contest that we're going to run, uh, sponsored by Time Well Spent, separate from our other two contests. And now we have three contests here on the Spiel, and we've got you know the Backshell Spotlight contest where you can win some dice. We've got uh, the Name That Game uh, contest. Now, in addition to that Name That Game contest, which we'll still be having in this episode, um, we're having this Time Well Spent contest, and Oh, this is this is this is ultra crazy. <laughs> well, um, basically, the contest is going to be that once you've listened to this episode, we're going to um, you'll go to the Time Well Spent website, so, which is timewellspent.org, and what you're going to do is look up the two the pages that list the two games that we played off the list. So in this case today, it was Landlord and Shogun. If you go to those two pages, on one of those pages, there'll be a little Spiel logo. And right underneath that Spiel logo will be this cool little pic or this graphic, image, yeah. this image of a game, but it's going to be a super, super close-up of the, of the game. Your job is going to be to identify the game from which this little image comes from. If you can do that, you'll send either Stephen or I an email at daveatthespiel.net or Stephen at thespiel.net. Give us, tell us what it is, and you'll be entered into the drawing for time well spent prize package, which is over the top cool. <laughs> yep. You're going to love this. They're giving the winner a copy of Notre Dame, Coliseum, and Fun Factory. Factory Fun. Factory Fun, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> All three games to one lucky winner. Now, here's the bad news, and I can hear the cries of protestation from across the Atlantic. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, we can't afford to ship them overseas, so it's United States uh, listeners only. Sorry, all those European and Australian and Asian listeners out there, and African and South American listeners. Exactly. And don't Antarcticans. Let, yeah, don't let that dissuade you from visiting visiting their site. Yes, they do ship or, internationally. They do ship internationally. You know, it's just that we can't afford... <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. to send out um, these huge prize packages overseas. Sorry. <laughs> the other two you're still you still qualify for. We right. got the dice and we've got the name that game, so you can still participate in those. But what a cool way to, to kick off right. our sponsorship. Um, yeah, we're I actually going to have the drawing on our next episode. So you've got the full two weeks. Yeah. You don't have to run out yeah. there and... <laughs> Do everything this second, unlike it's, our name that game, where it's kind of a speedier game. Right. You got you got your time to get in, but go visit them, look around their site. I think you'll like it. I love the fact that they on all the pages for the games they tell you exactly if it's a low amount, they tell you exactly how many are left. A lot of times I'm like, you know what, I really want to get that game, but I'll just wait till tomorrow. But mm-hmm. when I go to their site, I'm like, <laughs> you see, oh, there's only they one. only have one left. I'll be taking that now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we encourage you to check out um, timewellspent.org. Um, I think we're almost here at the end of the list here, aren't we, Dave? Remember, oh. you can go to, to timewellspent.org to check out the two games off the list, Landlord and Shogun. Participate in the contest. What's what's the damage here? We've What's the list down to now? You want the good news or the bad news? Well, I know I'm going to get the bad news, so <laughs> I'll go f- good news first. Okay, well, the good news is, after playing Shogun and Landlord, we are down to 139. Woohoo! The bad news is in about 10 minutes I'll be getting online to update our list, which will make it balloon up to 149. What? What? (laughs) How did that happen? Because we are adding Arcadia, Gipf Project Expansion Set 3, Hive, Intrigue, Leonardo da Vinci, Lifeboats, Modern Art, The Pillars of the Earth, Thief of Baghdad, and Notre Dame to our list of games that need to be played. Woo! You went crazy, boy. I did. <laughs> I have. I haven't bought games for almost two months now. Wow! And I just. I couldn't hold back. You had some pent up purchasing power. <laughs> exactly. So the list is ballooned, but that's just more cool stuff that you guys are going to get to hear about. Yep. So something to look forward to. Backshelf spotlight. These games need some love, and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So, a little unfinished business. We have the Backshelf Spotlight Connection from Episode 30. Um, the two games from Episode 30, if you remember, were Filthy Rich and Liar's Dice. And as we always do, we have the connection between these two things. We do it on the forums now, and we had a, a lively discussion of banti- <laughs> bantering about between people, giving each other hard times even about their, their exactly. guesses, which was great. Um, I encourage you to log on to the spiel.net and go to the forums and look at the Backshelf Spotlight Connections. Um, just because it's fun, even if you don't want to guess. But if you do guess, you you have a chance of winning a set of Spiel Dice. And we are proud to announce that we had someone who crawled into our brains exactly. and actually guessed our mystery connection this week. We have um, his username on the Spiel.net is EC Hack, And I'm guessing this is Edmund Hack, because I've had several emails from an Edmund Hack. And unless we have two different hacks who have uh, <laughs> who are posting to the site or, or uh, um, have emailed me, Edmund Hack is the winner of our Backshelf Spotlight connection this week. Awesome, awesome. Um, he is going to win a set of Spiel dice for his guess, which was... 
the fact that both games involve covering up something. In the case of Liar's Dice, you're using the dice cup to cover over your dice. And in Filthy Rich, the pages cover each other up. So one sign will cover up another sign. So it was a pretty simple little connection of having physical components being covered up or hidden or secret. So congratulations, Edmund. Woo! Awesome, awesome. You'll be, we'll be contacting you shortly and you'll receive a set of spiffy spiel dice. So on with the back shelf this week. Um, the two games this week are Adalverflictet and Balderdash. Obvious connection between those two. Remember, you can log on again to the forums at thespiel.net. There's going to be a connection between these two. If you put your guesses down in the forum, if you guess our mystery connection, you'll be in the running for a set of spiel dice. If no one gets the mystery connection, then the most creative one will win a set of spiel dice. So um, why don't you go first? Cool. First up, Balderdash. Balderdash was published by Parker Brothers in 1986. Unfortunately, the design is uncredited. Um, it's for three to six players, uh, uh, three to six players ages 10 and up. My version is the 1986 version. The newer versions say that it's actually for three or more players and for ages 12 and up. It's still the same game. Why they felt necessary to change the <laughs> amount strange. of players and the age, don't know. Retails for 35 bucks. You can find it online for around $23. Balderdash is a classic bluffing game that involves words and those words' definitions. It's ultra cool. The components that come with the game are pretty simple. You have a game board and some pawns, all used just in keeping score. Then you have a box of cards, not, not unlike all the trivia games that we're familiar with. But each one of these cards, actually, one side of the card has five really crazy outside words that I would be willing to bet that nobody knows what the definitions to are. On the flip side of the card, there's the correct definitions for these five words. So a round goes something like this. One player takes a card out of the box, chooses a word, and tells everybody else what that word is. He then writes the word down on a little piece of paper and then turns the card over and now writes the correct definition on the same piece of paper. Fold that piece of paper up, throw it in a hat. Now everybody else writes a word down on a little piece of paper. However, their definition is going to be a bogus definition that they are creating on their own. Keep in mind that you want to come up with a definition that is convincing enough to have other... Plausible. <laughs> exactly. Plausible enough that the other players will think that it, in fact, is the correct definition. So once everybody has written their definitions, they go into a hat, you mix them all up, you draw them out, and the person who actually drew the card out of the box is now going to read out loud all of these definitions mixed up. Somewhere mixed up in all the bogus ones will be the real one. And you just read through them and everybody listens to them. Usually at this time, people are just cracking up, falling yeah. on the floor because the definitions, <laughs> depending upon how creative and how lively the group of people is you're playing with, this game can be absolutely insane being the reader is the hardest part just trying to make it through all the definitions oh, with a straight face not is the hardest exactly because <laughs> if, if you if you laugh out loud while you read one you give away automatically that that's not the right one <laughs> so it's really hard being the reader to just blank face and now read them all plain and even, you know, even though they are usually so silly. <laughs> but this game is a classic. It's been around for a long time. Actually, it was a game before it was even an official oh, board yeah. game. Very we played Dictionary, yes. is what we called it, many years before this came out. And it was just open a dictionary, find a wacky word, and do it that way. Yeah, it's basically just like a codified form of right. a dictionary exactly. game. Exactly. I do have to take two seconds out and tell one story. Okay. And I think you were involved on this. Oh, was I? Yeah. 
Uh-oh. You weren't. We, I'm not making fun of you. It's somebody okay. else, but you were there. <laughs> so we're at my house. We're playing. We've got a large group of eight people or so playing this game. We've had several rounds. Everybody's comfortable with how to play it, and it's my mother-in-law's turn. Okay, so she draws the card, reads the word. We all put our def- definitions down. We throw them in the hat. She mixes them up. She does a really good job at keeping a straight face as she reads all the definitions go by. So we all vote, and she says, okay, Dave wrote this, and he gets three votes. Steven wrote this, he gets three votes. We go through them all, and that's it. We're like, what was the real definition? And she's like, oh, I was supposed to put that in the hat? <laughs> ah! What? I do remember that. That is awesome. <laughs> it was just, we're, we're all like, none of those can be the right definition. And they weren't, because she didn't put it in the damn hat. <laughs> it was very funny. Yep. She was she was a little perplexed by the whole, <laughs> yeah, exactly. didn't really get the concept. <laughs> exactly. But uh, check out Balderdash. Been around for a while in many forms. Classic party game. Yeah, one of my all-time favorite party type games, especially if you're with, you know, a bunch of creative freaks who mm-hmm. are just going to break loose on these crazy definitions but so that's the first first game in the back shelf spotlight balderdash which has a connection to adel verpflichtet i don't how can i have a connection i can't even pronounce it <laughs> yes <laughs> well this game has had many names too you might know this game better as hoity-toity in its current incarnation or um if, if you're from great britain it was available as by fair means or foul and it probably has other names too i think there was a swedish version of the game that i saw pictures of and i i'm there's a by hooker crook by hooker by crook too right and yeah uh, i remember that there's another one too that i'm forgetting so klaus Tabor is the designer um Aaliyah, avalon hill fx schmid gibson games jumbo <laughs> and Uberplay have all had versions of this game so you can see it's had a long and storied history and has obviously stood the test of time. Did I say it was, came out in 1990? I don't remember whether I said that or not. If I didn't, I'm saying it again. Cool. <laughs> so, in Adult Reflected, uh, you play the role of a quirky English collector. You're trying to acquire precious items to decorate your manor. These could be ancient painted masks, meerschaum pipes, or Elvis's guitar. Or all of the above. <laughs> you go to the auction house and try to build the best collection faster than your opponents. The object of the game is basically a race game, which is really, with right. all these other mechanics, it's so strange that basically what it boils down it's to first is... First one around the board. First one around the board, like you know, so many other classic board <laughs> games. How weird to find a mechanic right. that would fit well with that classic mechanic. Um, so the object, again, is to make it farther around the board than your opponent. You're all basically trying to get to the manor house and to the dining table. And the person that can get on this track farthest around the dining table is going to win. The mechanic of the game is basically a modified version of rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> right. But stay with me. Don't turn off your iPod yet. <laughs> We're not going to talk about rock, paper, scissors because that's not necessarily awesome. But this game really has, has something going for it. Um, so you're going to make two choices on each turn with two sets of, uh, two different sets of cards. Um, first, you're secret, secretly going to decide whether to play an auction card or a castle card. You're going to be in competition in the second round with anyone who played the same card as you. So in other words, auctions versus auctions and castles versus castles. Now in this second round, you're going to have a second round of secret decisions, which is sort of like the rock, paper, scissors, where you're going to decide which card you want to play and then flip them over. So in the auction, if you're in the auction versus auction, uh, you can choose between playing a check card or a thief card. The highest check card that's played is going to win one of two items that are flipped up from the item decks. And as I indicated, they're all over the map from real legitimate (laughs) antiques to, you know, Marilyn Monroe's lipstick, all all over the map. Um, They'll have a letter 
at the top, which that I'll get to that in a minute. It's important to keep track of the letters and the kinds of collections that you're you're going to be uh, collecting throughout the course of the game. Um, so that's the auction. You're going to choose. Um, the check or the thief. If you play a thief card, if you only play one thief card, then you get to steal the last check that was used to buy an item. So it's a way of replenishing your hand with checks and being able to buy other items at auctions later. If more than one thief card is played, you're out of luck. You both went for the check and you both missed it. <laughs> um, so that's that's a bummer if you did that. So that's auction versus auction. Castle versus castle, you can choose between the exhibit, the thief, or the detective card. The exhibits are collections of the items that you've got from the auction. Three or more cards with consecutive and or identical letters. So item cards have letters printed on them, as I said. So you could play a collection that would be an, an exhibit that would be ABC or AAB would be legal, but A. C, C would not be because you've got a gap in there. There's no B in there. Um, the largest exhibit is going to move forward a number of spaces printed on the top space that you're on. So each space on the board has two numbers, a top one and a bottom one. The person who plays the biggest collection is going to get to move the top number on the board. And remember, after all, that's the name of the game. You're wanting to move forward on the board. The second highest exhibit is going to move the bottom number forward on the board. Now, the thief works kind of similarly to the thief in the uh, the other case um, they you steal items from the the exhibits that are played instead of the checks from the auction um, the detective cards <laughs> however make it painful if you play the thief the detective cards place all the thieves in jail if you catch at least one thief you move ahead a number of spaces equal to your your current position on the board so if you're in second place you would move ahead two if you were in first place you move ahead one and so on um, the game ends when one player's pawn reaches the dinner table. Players have one last chance to move forward at the end, so there's one last last licks where you're going to play exhibits, um, and the highest value exhibit um, is going to get to move ahead eight spaces, and the second highest value exhibit is going to get to play four or go ahead four spaces on the board. So the end game is is triggered by someone making it to the dining table but there's no guarantee they're going to win cuz you might right. be in in range and be able to play a massively valuable exhibit and and scoot around the table a little bit farther from them it's just a wacky combination of rock paper scissors right. mechanics you have the 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 fun thing is that it's the you know trying to get in your opponent's brain and think exactly. what they're going to do and the more people you have doing that the wackier and the crazier it gets because you no matter how much you're sure you think what the other person's going to do it's yeah, almost yeah. guaranteed yeah. they're going to do the opposite of what you think they're going to yeah. do everybody <laughs> looks at each other you're staring around you're you know looking into each other's eyes and everybody's like oh he's they're playing thieves so you don't play the thief, and neither did anybody else. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it just never works out in your favor, but it's always a hoot. It's very light on the, the mechanics, but very heavy on the interaction, I think. And for that reason alone, I think it's it's worth checking out and dusting off. I don't verflict it or or checking it out for the first yeah. time if, if this is the first time yeah. you've heard of it. I think the one the current one is hoity-toity, is that right? Yes, hoity-toity is the current right. one that's available. Um, so, again, the two games are I don't verflict it. And Balderdash. There's a connection between the two of them. Log on to thespiel.net and see if you can figure it out. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover. 
but the stuff, the goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. Great goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. That's right, it's time for Goober again. What do we have in the Goober list this week? A slightly old, some slightly old school Goober here. A game called Battle Masters. It was published by Milton Bradley in 1992. It was designed by Stephen Baker. It's for two or more players ages 10 and up. The more is that you can play in teams. Um, when it was in print, it listed for $30. Unfortunately, it is long out of print. However, there's almost always a copy of this on eBay. And oh, it's yeah. really not too crazy. 25 to 50 bucks, something like that. It was mass-produced. There are a lot yeah, of copies yeah, floating around. Tons of them. I have two copies myself because when you hear the goober that's in this, you can understand why I had to have two. <laughs> <laughs> so a little of the story is basically it is a tabletop miniatures battle game for two players. Um, obviously, this game was... Um, aimed towards kids, a little lighter, but I know there's a lot of non-kids who own this game. Basically, one player is playing um, the Empire, and another player is playing the Evil Chaos <laughs> Army, and they're pitting these armies um, at each other. The game is over when one side completely decimates the other side and just beats every single figure out there. The one thing I'll talk about before we get on to the uh, goober is the mechanic that is kind of interesting. You don't just take turns like normal in this game. There's a battle deck, and every turn you turn up one card, and that card says whose turn it is and which troops they can activate and move this time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes your opponent may have five turns in a row <laughs> because that's just how the cards went. Kind of goofy, but it was when it came out, it was really hoot to play. You can see, I mean, battle lore, you can see kind of the action yeah, cards yeah. coming in, you know, in line. If we were talking about the game family tree again, you can kind of see it's a little further out on that branch of that same tree. Yeah, absolutely. So here we go. Everybody ready for the goober? There is some good stuff in here. Let's start off with the figures. There's over 100 plastic figs of, of pretty darn good size in this game. We'll start off with the Chaos Army. There's three champions of Chaos. Um, ten Chaos Warriors, ten Chaos Archers, ten Orcs, ten Goblins, six Mounted Wolf Riders, ten Beastmen, and a huge Ogre Champion. That's just on the Chaos side. On the Imperial side, there's three Mounted Lord Knights, nine Imperial Knights, fifteen Imperial Men-at-Arms, ten Imperial Archers, five Imperial Crossbowmen, and one Mighty Cannon with two crews, with two crew members. <laughs> and... The figs are really neat. They're not super highly detailed, but I've seen people really paint these up and do them do them some justice. And they're pretty good size, too. I don't know the exact scale, but they're pretty hefty. So there are a lot of figs, over 100 figs. Now we get to the rest of the goober. The board for this game is huge. It's not a board. It's a mat. It's four and a half feet by five feet. It's... <laughs> Can it, you think of a game that has a bigger playing surface than no, that? I no, can't. It's huge. That's why I had to buy two, because I put two of them together, and it makes a huge... I mean... <laughs> of course you did. You barely have a room big enough to play this game in. But the hex... The board is divided up into hexagonal spaces. Each hex is at least eight inches across. I mean, it's huge. So you've got that battle mat, gargantuan. You've got 25 plastic bases. You've got 25 flagpoles, three sheets of labels. Trust me, you're putting on a lot of labels. All the shields get labels. All the bases get labels. All the flags get labels. There is labels on labels. It's crazy. There's four plastic hedges that are cool. There is a plastic tower that comes in five pieces that is at least nine inches tall. That nice. is 
really, really cool. I don't remember that about that game. It's cool. it's sweet, and that's why I had to have two copies too. You have to have two battle towers, baby. Of course. <laughs> this is like the tower episode. With this the is the tower show episode. Gun. It is. That's weird. <laughs> so it comes with the battle cards we talked about. There's 59 of those. There's six ogre champion cards. There's 10 mighty cannon tiles, which these are really cool. They're big round circular tiles that show things blowing up. Because when you fire the cannon, the ball just kind of heaves itself out there, bounces off of one um, unit, bounces into another, just bounces across the battle fight, uh, the battlefield, obliterating everything. It's ultra cool. It comes with six dice, four terrain tiles, three rubble tokens, 22 elite tokens, 50 skull tokens, and 25 unit tokens. Woo! This just has tons and tons of stuff. This is as gooberlicious as it gets. I mean, it's it's cool. If you can find one of these cheap, you'll play the game kind of once, probably as it is out of the box. After that, you'll find all kinds of uses just for the goober alone. Mm-hmm. Very cool. There was actually two expansions for this that came out in the same year, the Battlemasters Chaos Band and the Battlemasters Imperial Lords. Mm-hmm. But if you want some goober, look up this guy. It is awesome. The Game Sommelier, or Right Game, Right Crowd. Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal, the Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd, age, experience, or personality. Each week, one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called The Game Sommelier. Okay, here we go with this episode's Game Small Yay. Everybody ready? They remember that Steven's challenge last episode was evil because it came from me. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> exactly. And it was that Steven was supposed to try and find five games that players could join in the middle of the game or leave in the middle of the game, and the game would still be fun and it wouldn't be ruined. So let's see what you came up with. This was this was kind of a challenge because there's not a lot. <laughs> you have to. The interesting thing was I thought that I'd have to go with a specific type of game, like uh-huh. hardy games, and they just always stay with they those. Would stay with those. And the more I thought about it, and I tried to stay away from ones we've covered several times on the sommelier or backshelf because cool. I thought that was cheating. And you know, it's, it's just boring if I say <laughs> you know I could have put like Great Dal Moody or apples to apples on here because right. those are so free form and you can just play and come and go as you want. Right. But I was like, that's cheating because we've <laughs> covered those before and you know about those. I'm the sommelier. I got to set the bar higher for myself. So um, I put took those out of contention. So um, the interesting thing, as I started to say, was that it wasn't as specific as I thought. There are actually some meaty long games in here, as well as some lighter party type cool. games. So let's start with the lighter party type games. One that I don't even think we've mentioned yet, and I'm sure is going to get some eye rolls from some <laughs> listeners out there, which is Flux. Uh, 1997, Andrew and Kristen Looney are the designers. Looney Labs is the publisher. Two to six players. It, it it is so free form a game that it's almost even not a game. You know, <laughs> right. you start out with one rule, which is draw a card and play a card, and there are cards that affect the rules. You don't even know what the object of the game is until you're in the middle of the game. Um, I you know it says two to six players, but I've played this with a a lot more right. people than that, and you know there's going to be some people who just don't get this game that are just going to hate it because it has that you know. 
totally freeform impromptu quality to it but to me that's that's an advantage if you're looking for a you know it is a good quick filler game but it's also an advantage if people want to leave and come back because the game has that sort of built in that exactly. that informal very relaxed attitude is pervades the whole game so first one flux absolutely great great pick that's the one i would not have thought about but that would be perfect since the object is always in flux, when you leave, most of the time you still don't know what you're supposed to do to win, so it wouldn't affect gameplay at all. Yeah, somebody could just come in and sit down and go, oh, well, the object is bread and chocolate. I draw my cards. Oh, there's bread and there's chocolate. I win. Yeah, and then we kill them. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thumbs up. Great pick. Cool. Okay, so um, moving into a little bit harder type game, let's go with Set. 1991, M. Falco is the designer. Set Enterprises is the publisher. Two to eight players. So a little bit of background, because some people might not know about okay. set. Um, each card contains one to three matching objects in one of three colors, shapes, and shadings. Twelve cards are laid out, and the first person to spot a set of three collects those cards. The cards are replaced from the deck, and play continues. A set consists of three cards, which are either all alike or all different in each attribute. For instance, if all three cards have the same number of objects, but different shapes, shadings, and colors, then they're a set. If two of the cards have a common attribute that is not shared by the third, they aren't a set. So it's almost, it's, it walks that line between puzzle and game very right. nicely. Um, and because of that, I think it would be very easy for people to come and go in, in a situation like that. Um, it is a brain herder if you can't, right. you know, if you can't get your brain to look at, look at the cards in that way. We, we covered Quarto recently too, and it uh-huh. kind of has that same, you know, some of these things are not like the other <laughs> kind of thing where you have to be able to look at them in a certain way. So number two, set. Absolutely thumbs up. This is a great game. I haven't played this for a long time only because I was beaten by like an eighth grader once. Decided I was never playing the damn game again. But this would be perfect to join or to leave and it wouldn't affect the gameplay at all. Perfect. Second thumbs up. Excellent. Um, So let's see. Um, Here's one that doesn't necessarily fit this uh, category or doesn't fit in that that informal party type category as well as you might think. Shadows over Camelot. 2005, Serge Laggett and Bruno Cathala are the designers. Days of Wonders, the publisher. It's for three to eight players. Uh, it's a cooperative game where the knights of the round table are trying to gain honor for Arthur and his court, and you're trying to get more white swords, which bring honor by completing different tasks uh, around the round table than uh, the dark swords, which uh, indicate corruption and that the you know they've lost their way. The interesting thing is that there could be a traitor in the midst of the round table, and you don't know while you're playing if everybody's working towards this goal or not. The, the first instinct would be to say, well, what if the traitor was the one that has to leave? Well, to me, the fact that the traitor is unknown, that just adds a whole element. Well, was that person the traitor? Was it not the traitor? Right. I don't think the game falls apart at all if that person has to leave because it just adds another question mark in the sort of paranoid minds of the people playing. So um, second or third one is uh, Shadows Over Camera. That's definitely a thumbs up. I know that that's probably the only game that officially actually has rules for joining and leaving the game in oh, I, mid-play. I totally even forgot about that. That's funny. <laughs> and so so that that's a great pick. And I, I can't think of any other game that has actually written into the game, oh, sure, leave whenever you want, join whenever you want, especially such a cool game like Shadows Over Camelot. Mm-hmm. So that's one thumb way up. <laughs> okay, now, now heading on off the deep end here, here's one that you <laughs> might go, huh? Civilization. 
1981, <laughs> Francis Tresham, Avalon Hill is the publisher, uh, two to seven players. I would even throw in, you could do Civilization or Advanced Civilization because it just adds, um, the rules don't change significantly in the way that it would affect the challenge. Now, here's where... Here's why this fits. Okay. It's a long-ass game, for one. So they actually, sort of like uh, Shadows Over Camelot, they have uh, written in things like if somebody has to leave, what happens oh, to their units. If a cool. civilization sort of crumbles, because it is kind of the ebb and flow of civilizations right. over time, their particular civilization, their little people on the board become barbarians. And other people can then expand into their area. They're not just sort of vacated from the board. You'd still have to deal with those barbarians uh -huh. out there. But it's basically you not having played this, you might not be aware of it. Right. But it's basically each one's and each person is sort of in an individual race against themselves. You're trying to advance your civilization along your time track as fast as you can. So the fact that you leave before someone else doesn't really affect my scoring, you know, if you had to get up and leave, it doesn't mean that I'm not in the Bronze Age anymore. Right. Um, obviously, with it being a longer game, uh, you know, I'm almost never played a game where this doesn't happen <laughs> at some point. Exactly. And, you know, it does it does affect the game, but it doesn't kill the game. Okay. Because everybody has an, you know, you have a shot at getting those barbarian hordes or the areas that that civilization once took over. So, number four, civilization. Cool. Is there is there, you think it would be hosed if you tried to join no mid game. Well, the other thing is that um, you know someone if they wanted to join, uh, the the only situation where it wouldn't work is if it was full. If you were playing with your full complement right, of exactly. people, uh, you know you got me there. But as long as you weren't playing there, there are specific starting areas for the. They would for, just be kind of behind the eight ball as far as their civil their civilization wouldn't be advanced as far as long. The the way it works, you know, there would be they wouldn't. They would struggle for a little bit, but there's a ebb and flow to the disasters and calamities. Or if you had someone leaving and coming, they could even take over the other person's spot. I know that wasn't really covered in uh -huh. the thing, but you could have a situation like that where they could take over those barbarians and turn them into a civilization. I don't think it would be a disaster for them to actually come into the game midstream. Um, you're going to be a little bit behind the eight ball, but there's so many things that can help catch you up that uh, I, I think it would still work pretty well. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll give that a thumb almost all the way up. I, since I haven't played it, I don't want to say that it would be perfect, but it sounds like it would work. Cool. Especially any game that's five hours long, you have to leave <laughs> le a little leeway for people to possibly have to get yep. out of there. Yep. Okay, cool. <laughs> Last but not least is Pitch Car. Uh, 1995, Jean de Puel, Goldseber is the publisher. Uh, Goldseeber and Ferti is the publisher. Two to eight players. It's the classic dexterity-based uh, disc-flipping car racing game, uh, all off sort of Formula One or IndyCar, where you're flipping your cars around the tracks. Um, I've had, I know we've had informal sessions with uh, Carabande, which is it sort of. Grandpappy, right? Um, where you you can have people coming in, and and the games last, you know, two. Three minutes, so you could easily, if one person comes out, the person that's coming in could either take their car for that two-minute period, or the next race is going to be starting because it is such a quick game that it's not really going to the, the game's not going to fall apart because it is such a, a quick game. And that one, that one kind of occurred to me late, but I thought that one was kind of an interesting, in a weird way. Would yeah, would I, fit. I think that's perfect. I think it was almost designed for that for that specific reason to let people, you know, come and go as they please because it's kind of. A party feel to that game, you know, everybody around a table just flicking the things. That's perfect. 
Another thumbs up. Cool. I think someone even during the pub games challenge said that that was one that they played in the pub. I think oh, maybe okay. it was yeah, you're right. listener in New Zealand I you're think, right. who, who said that and said they played it, which would be, I mean, this is exactly, the oh. pub would be the kind of place yeah. where you would have people coming and going. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, you did a great job on those. I don't think, I only thought of like one of those was on there, so you did great. Oh, really? On, yeah, you said yeah. You, were, you were predicting that I was, <laughs> what was the one that you said? That you Shadows were, over Camelot. Oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> I, f- I figured that that one would be, but the other ones I had thought of, and, the, and they're great choices. So cool. Cool. Well, you are off the hook, my friend, for at least one more episode because Woo-hoo! there's not going to be a challenge this week because we're bringing back what was formerly known as the Collector's <laughs> Corner and we have now named Notes from the OCD, thanks to our listener contribution for the name. That would be Notes from the Obsessive Collector's Desk, right? Yes. Very yes. cool. <laughs> so uh, look forward to No Game Sommelier next uh, episode, but we're going to have notes from the OCD with uh, Dave and I in residence, and we have some good ideas for uh, uh, that segment, so look forward to that next episode. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So we have a nickname to award first things first here. Thanks cool. to we always give a goofy game theme nickname to uh, the people who uh, very generously donate to the Spiel cause and help keep keep us going here. So uh, we have to award a nickname to Noah the Ninja Coleman. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there are ninjas in samurai swords, uh, which I think was cool. also called shogun. It was at one point. absolutely. <laughs> so thank you very much, Noah. We totally appreciate it. Anybody who wants to to donate, there are donate buttons on the the spiel net. Feel free to uh, to help us keep things rolling along here. We totally appreciate it, and thanks very much, Noah. On with the mailbag. So before we get into any real emails, we want to give you a quick reminder about the current poll that we have up on the website. If you'll remember, it was a poll asking you what some of your most quirky little... Your favorite game superstitions. Superstitions type of things were, because we know we all have them. There's tons of them. So at the moment, with 27% of the votes, obsessively organizing your hand of cards is coming in first place. At a close second place with 24% are the players that have to play with a certain color. (laughs) Steven? Uh, Yeah, that that would be blue for me because blue is luckier. It's just a proven proven fact. We should have had a a, a sub-poll for like which color. Right, exactly. Just to see how obsessive and how how many many people have to fight over certain colors. (laughs) So there are a couple comments that I thought were worthy of mention here from the little comments on the polls. Steerpike from the UK, he wanted a multiple choice poll. A lot of you said that. Sorry, there's no way for me to do multiple choice. Surely you can pick your favorite. If you can't, put your other ones in the in the comments as as a lot of people have already done. He writes that he always I always sit left of the poodle, uh, the player who is so hopeless that he always sets you up for winning every time. I mean, who wouldn't? He says he always reads the rules, too. The above-mentioned poodle always gets the rules wrong, so they need rereading anyway. <laughs> now, if Jason was here, he would be calling me the poodle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I'm afraid that is absolutely true. <laughs> Dave Fifi Colson. <laughs> 
so that was really cool. Um, also, thanks to Larry Kruger in Wisconsin, who solved the great cosmic mystery of the gold die. Um, the gold die, which is that die that my, this gaming group that I game with called the Rat Bastards uses to open and close their session. That's their favorite game superstition. It actually comes from a game called Word Nerd, which was produced by Hasbro in the late 70s. He took one look at the die and knew instantly, Boom. I've been looking for this thing forever and could not find it. Wow. Sure enough, there it is. The gold eye is actually called the Nerd Cube. Oh, how in the appropriate. Game's parla- parlance, <laughs> that is so painfully ironic that I can't bring myself to call it the Nerd Cube, but, you know, it sort of warms my heart to know that we've been rolling the Nerd Cube all these years. <laughs> so thanks, Larry. That is great. On with the uh, actual mail. Okay, first up, we got a great email from um, Leslie Hammerschmidt, um, one of our listeners who's actually involved in the Gen Con auction. Said she was just kind of listening to some back issues and found the uh, Gen Con episode where we kind of go on about the auction because it is one of our one of the funnest things that we like to do at Gen Con. And so she just said thank you very much for mentioning the podcast or for mentioning the auction, and then went on to give us some information about a new feature that they're adding this time, which are actually if you're somebody who's going to sell items in the auction, you can actually online, before you even come to Indy, you can register all your items and have them barcoded so that when you get here, it's just like a quick scan, 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 scan. They're all in, all ready to go. How cool is that? I think she said something about like somebody came to Gen Con SoCal with like 350 things, and they uh-huh. had them in and out in five minutes because oh, they'd done great. all the stuff. So. If you're planning on going to Gen Con and you want, you know, and you're going to sell stuff, I would totally yeah, check Yeah, that's, that's really neat. They gave neat. the website, I think, in there. Is it weekendwarrior.com? Yeah, exactly. It's www.weekendwarrior.com. So if you're interested in this, check that out and, and look yeah. for more information yeah. there. because the auction at Gen Con is, is way cool. Steve and I will be there a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as much as we can. <laughs> So uh, Danny in North Carolina writes to let us know that we've gone from nerdy to cool in the eyes of her daughter. <laughs> so she says, lately I've been listening to the spiel while I'm doing housework. So I've, I have it blaring out through the stereo speakers as I move about the house. One day my 14-year-old asked me why I listen to those guys all the time, her <laughs> words. Uh, they, they are so nerdy talking about battles all the time. I think... Uh, you guys were talking about Battleground Fantasy Warfare in that particular episode. I chastised her about criticizing others' hobbies. After all, I don't want her to turn into the high school bully. <laughs> <laughs> a few weeks later, I was listening to your Game Sommelier segment about lunchtime games. All of my kids were in the general area when you mentioned Poison and their ears perked up. We have a tiny game collection, so we play Poison a lot. My daughter said, What's this show? It sounds kind of cool. I reminded her that she had said, she had called you guys nerdy a while back. Her answer, <laughs> well, they mentioned poison, so they redeemed themselves. The real kicker is that now she wants to try some of those games with the battles and the quests. <laughs> the fickleness of teenagers. Exactly. <laughs> so that's great. I also wanted to mention that Danny actually has started her own podcast um, called Better Late Than Never with uh. one of her longtime girlfriends. I've listened to a couple episodes. It's pretty cool. They talk about games some and TV shows, movies, and life in general. It's it's really kind of just an informal conversation between cool. between Danny and her friend. And <laughs> I, I'd check it out if you're interested in that. Um so thanks, thanks to Danny. It's good to know that at least for a, a brief and shining moment, maybe the fact that we mentioned her daughter will be cool for another episode before we go back to being nerdy. I've never been cool, and I won't be, so I'm not worried about it. <laughs> uh, let's see. Who, cool. who else we got? Um, got a great email from um, Kevin Rutherford in Perrysburg, Ohio, who gave us a couple really neat places on the Internet to search for great game deals. Um, the first one is Game of the Day, which is kind of a competitor with 
um, the Tanga website. Um, unlike Tanga, who does some games and a lot of other electronic things, um, the Game of the Day does just board games, one or two every day, Great deals on them, and they have really good deals on shipping. If you get more than one, they'll take a $5 discount. And if you get two, they'll even take a bigger discount. And at the end of the day, whoever buys the most games is actually going to get a free game <laughs> as a bonus. That's really pretty cool. And they, they do have the Game-a-thons, which, where they sell a whole bunch of games in the same day. And coincidence? I think not. They run on the same days as the Tangathons. <laughs> pretty cool. Little competition. Never heard anybody. Exactly. So that sounds kind of neat. And then there's another um, website called um, www.boardgameprices.com, which is really cool. It's kind of like the BizRate or... Any of those other website, price grabber, any of those things, but it's specifically for board games. You can go there searching for a board game and it will list all the sites that are currently carrying that have that game in stock and what their prices are, what their shipping um, prices are. It's just kind of a place all in one website. Easy way to comparison shop for games. And that's just, that's a great service. Yeah, I think anyone who's interested in games. Especially if you can guarantee that it's just going to be board games coming up on that. That's really cool. And it carries all the major, you know, retailers. It's got Fun Again and Thought Hammer and uh, Time Well Spent and all the all the other international retailers as well. It's not just American centric, which is, is really cool, I think. Okay. Um, so, and we actually have links to those on the, the little sidebar on the spiel.net. So you can even go the, there. We'll have the links in the show notes, of course. Exactly. Um, and then I think what, last but not least, we've got a, a hot off the, the wire Uh-oh. mail from David Gullett, um, who weighed in on our, uh, on your sommelier, oh, okay. uh, guesses for the, uh, the Cub Scout troop. Cool. So he writes, uh, great games, David, for the campfire. I play games with kids quite a bit. I jotted down a couple which is difficult to do while listening to a podcast and driving down the freeway. You might want to pull off the road, David, and uh, (laughs) write those down. Uh, i got to disagree with Liar's Dice, though. Weren't these seven-year-olds? They haven't mastered their multiplication tables, and you're expecting them to handle Liar's Dice? I think a 20-person game of Liar's Dice with kids would be brutally frustrating. Equally frustrating would be Wise and Otherwise, Stephen's recommendation. I think Wise and Otherwise is a greatly underappreciated game, and maybe I'd play a game with my gamer kids. I can't imagine springing this on a troop of young Boy Scouts. The game would degrade pretty quickly. Can you imagine trying to read their handwriting? <laughs> okay, he's, he's got pretty good points there. Yep. I, I would I would accept those thumbs If you down. have to know your multiplication tables to play Liar's Dice, then I might as well not ever play <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why Dave always loses. <laughs> so um, he goes on to say he thought a uh, white elephant and win, lose, or draw were were good choices. Um, The cooler thing that I thought he brought up was another game that's sort of like Liar's Dice that's sort of geared more towards kids that he wanted us to know about. And here you go, David, for your listening enjoyment. I'm going to try to pronounce the German name of this game. (laughs) Eichhornchen Pande. Wow. I probably butchered the heck out of that, but I'm going to include it in the show notes. Here, I'm going to do it again. Eichhornchen Pande. So... um, in this game, kids roll three dice and keep them secret. One at a time, you show one of your dice um, and decide whether you're in or out. If you drop out after seeing everyone's number one dice, you lose nothing. If you drop out after seeing the number two dice, you lose four points. If you stay all the way to number three and you win, you're going to get seven points or you're going to lose seven if you are the loser. The winner is the person with the highest total count of pips. However, a three of a kind always wins. So three ones would be a total of 17. Cool. 
Um, so there's a lot of bluffing to be had, but that's pretty basic addition. Yeah. And that would be a great hit. That was his suggestion. Instead of Liar's Dice, you could do something like that. <laughs> Can't you? How do you pronounce that again? Oh, man. You, you're <laughs> killing me. Eichhornchen Bande. Eichhornchen Bande. But can't you can't you see the Cub Scouts chanting this around the fire? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, another game of I Gorgin, I Gorgin, I go. Never mind. <laughs> it would have to be fun just because of the name. Yep. Well, I think uh, we can put Samurai Slumlords to uh, rest here. We can tuck them in, and <laughs> and we've we've done them justice. Thanks again to our our first sponsor. Time, Time well, well spent. spent. Thanks a lot. And remember that contest. That's an awesome contest. Exactly. Three games. Um, check those out. So without further ado, uh, I'm Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. Remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win, you, you just, just have, have to play. play.